Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Hey, parents. You're listening to the Project Parenthood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nanika Kaur, clinical psychologist and respectful parenting therapist. Each week... I'll introduce you to the same respectful parenting practices that I use to help parents repair and deepen connections with their children. You'll get tips for cultivating more parental self-compassion, more cooperation from your kids, and more joy, peace, and resilience in your relationship with them. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Dakota J. Irby, a researcher and consultant working at the organizational level to improve the lives of Black children and adults in educational spaces. You're going to hear about how having a large Black and Brown representation among the students and staff in a school building doesn't in itself make for an equitable school, and what it might look like to be what Dr. Irby calls courageously confrontational in the face of inequities. Stick around till the end to learn what parents can do to help increase equity at your child's school. Dakota J. Irby is an associate professor of educational policy studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago and founding member of Darut Consulting Cooperative. His life's work focuses on questions of how to create and sustain organizations that ensure Black people's self-determined well-being, development, and positive life outcomes. His academic research examines how equity-focused leadership improves Black children and youth's educational experiences and outcomes. He's the author of several books, and we talk about two of them today. A children's book called Magical Black Tears, a protest story, and his book for adults called Stuck Improving, Racial Equity and School Leadership, a case study of the progress and setbacks encountered over five years by leaders striving to improve racial equity in a large suburban high school. Dr. Irby uses design thinking and continuous improvement methods to help leaders and teams design and create organizations that affirm Black people. He volunteers in his neighborhood community garden and is treasurer for his local park advisory council and spends as much time as possible outdoors with his children and partner. Finally, he's the lead songwriter, guitarist, and performer for the band Dakota Black. Here's my chat with Dr. Irby. Hi, everyone. I'm here now with Dr. Dakota J. Irby, and I'm so glad to have you here at Project Parenthood to shed some light on how we can create more equitable schools. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaur. I appreciate the invitation to to participate. So before we jump in talking about schools, can you tell us a little bit about the picture book you wrote called Magical Black Tears and the message you're hoping parents can take from it? Yeah, sure. So um, Magical Black Tears, A Protest Story is a book that I that actually came to me in a dream in 2016. I'm a father of two children, and maybe it was just weighing on me. They were really tiny at this particular time. And there was a police-involved shooting in Milwaukee, where I lived at the time. And 
I can't recall whether it was a night, the same night, but a couple of nights somewhere within the time frame of this police involved shooting of a black male. Um, I had this dream and it was a very vivid dream. There was color, there was sound. Um, and it kind of jolted me, awoke me up and, uh, I sketched out the dream. Uh, and then I went back to bed and I shared it with a few people shortly thereafter and, um, didn't do much with it until 2020 when George Floyd was killed and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Marbury. And we saw the uprisings of the summer of 2020. And at that point I was convinced that I needed to revisit this story the story is about um, a family, um, a father, mother, two children, and they are in a community where there is something unusual happening in the neighborhood, at least it's unusual to the children. There's police, there's fire, um, and they're curious about what is happening outside. And their parents work to protect them and are asking them to come in the house and giving them this refrain, it'll be over in the morning. Uh, the children, um, driven by their curiosity, are you know looking out the window. And one night when the parents go to sleep, the children go out to the streets to find out what's going on. And there they discover why people are out in the streets protesting. And they also discover some magic. I don't want to give the whole book away, but they discover some magic and end up playing a role in healing their neighborhood. And I'm a person who talks about my children with a lot of things, and it was very difficult to figure out how to talk to them in an age-appropriate way about what was happening in a way that was honest and truthful, but that also recognized their curiosity, right? Um, and also was an effort to make, make them feel like they weren't victims, People deserve to be able to thrive in the neighborhoods and the communities that we live in. I live on the south side of Chicago in a predominantly black neighborhood. We experienced quite a bit of um, damage to one of our major commercial thoroughfares about two blocks from our house. We had smoke coming into our home. It was a situation where we couldn't not talk to them about what was going on. I've absolutely had my child ask, you know, why, why is everyone yelling? Why are they so upset? Mm -hmm. Right. And it is hard to explain. My child was much, much younger uh, during 2020. So it was very hard to, you know, explain what all, all of these things that were happening. Yeah, it was, um, it was a very interesting experience. And even just to think about some of the things that they asked or what was most devastating to them would be things like, you know, our Burger King was, you know, destroyed down the street. And me and my daughter would sometimes, you know, stop in the Burger King before school and get breakfast. And, you know, her question was like, you know, where we go get breakfast? You know what I'm saying? I was like, there's right. other places and it'll, it'll bounce back. Uh, and, you know, just those sorts of things were at the forefront of their mind. Yeah. So they were just curious. So it's a, it doesn't offer a lot of answers, but it attempts to raise a lot of questions. Absolutely. So switching gears a bit to school equity, mm -hmm. you've spoken about how schools don't have the racial capacities or knowledge to enact equity improvements that benefit black and brown students. Can you explain the importance of black and brown people's influential presence, as you've said, and, um, and what you mean by courageously confrontational school culture? What I mean by black and brown influential presence is that black and black, brown people um, aren't merely present. So I distinguish influential presence from mere presence. And so, for example, you can be in an environment that is majority 
um, numerically, a numeric majority of people of color, but there can still be an overwhelming um, and disproportionate amount of power and influence held by people who may not share their racial affinities, cultural affinities, um, and so on and so forth. And so what I try to, uh, what I argue in the book is that um, the mere presence of people of color uh, is not enough, but that people of color need to be uh, present in a way that's influential. And that can look multiple different ways. It could be in positions of leadership. It could be represented in the kind of knowledge base of a particular school community. So for example, in the curriculum, um, and that's not only like the pictures of people in the book, but the stories that we tell, the histories that we bring into a particular space. Um, and it shows up in seeing how people of color play a role in decision making, for example. Um, and so one of the basic questions that I would look for in a school to understand whether black and brown influential presence is being considered would be even, for example, in a predominantly white school, if they're, you know, pushing through a particular policy or making a change, have they incorporated, have they thought about the perspectives and sought out the perspectives of people of color? And so that, I argue, is black and brown influential presence and is really important because, number one, it speaks to the importance of having influence even when there is a numerical representation. And it also speaks to the ability for the influence to be present when there's a relatively lack of representation, you know, physical um, representation, because people can still seek out perspectives, ideas, knowledge, so on and so forth to make decisions. And the other one is what I call a courageously confrontational um, school culture. And this is make the distinction between um, a congenial culture where people are just nice and come to work and come to school to kind of get along. And then uh, collegial culture is the kind of culture where people come and they kind of, you know, support one another as colleagues, but they don't necessarily give one another the kind of professional kind of like push, loving critique that will allow them to actually do better by black and brown students. And so what I argue is that the confrontation is not necessarily with people per se, but it's with the ideas, the policies, the structures that people you know, uphold, that they operate in. And so to be confrontational is to do things um, like, you know, show up and protest and march and, you know, name injustices when you see them. And a lot of times in collegial organizations, people won't name injustices, but in a courageously confrontational when people feel an obligation and responsibility to do so, because in naming those things, it gives people the opportunity to address them. And then maybe they don't address them, right? But People should at least know. And, um, and so that directness is the way to get give people the opportunity to do something about the problems that, that they may not see sometimes, uh, but that many people in school communities do see. And really what I'm trying to do with the concept is add to the uh, field and to the literature on organizational change, which doesn't have a concept that focuses on what is the organizational culture look like when people are committed to anti-racism and racial justice. And so we see this more broadly in society. So, you know, when something happens, everybody always says, oh, here comes, you know, Al Sharpton and Sharpton and such and such again. Well, these are people who are operating in a tradition of, you know, courageous, what I would call courageous confrontation. So 
you know, they don't make suggestions. They show up to make demands and make proclamations that things aren't right and that they could be better and to say how they could be better. And so that is, for me, the example of a courageously confrontational culture and way of being and practice. And I found that in the schools, when communities and educators in schools take up those kind of practices, they end up being more affirming places for black and brown students. That makes a lot of sense, because what I hear you saying is it's not just about um, sort of the performative, a performative kind of diversity. We have a lot of black and brown people here, but they have no say. Or this idea that, you know, we're all being very kind to one another and we really prize like being nice to one another. Mm -hmm. But when things are really going on, we're none of us are really going to say anything about that. So this idea of of going beyond this performative, you know, we say that we're this anti-racist sort of community and culture, but really speaking about it, being assertive about it, being direct about it. Yeah. And giving people a voice, even if there are only a very few black and brown people, giving them a voice and saying, you know, we your voice is influential here. And I think part of it, too, is, you know, I've had mixed reactions to the language of like courageously confrontational. But in this particular school where I conducted the research, you know, students would do things like, you know, they will organize a walkout. Right. That's a legitimate form of confrontation in the same way that I write about in Magical Black Tears, um, you know, a protest story. I mean, in some societies, for example, in like, you know, France, like children are taught at a very young age that like protest and going to the streets is a legitimate thing that they should be ready and prepared to do at any point in their life should they need to. We don't do that in the United States, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But we know that those particular kinds of collective actions are what push our society to be closer to what it to its full potential in terms of creating a society where everybody regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, where you live, socioeconomic class can be treated with dignity and live a life with the promise of potential and happiness and joy. And absent people being willing to do that kind of courageous, um, engage in that kind of courageous confrontation, we wouldn't be a society that's continuing to strive to be that for people. Absolutely. I so agree with this. Um, You know, we're really so socialized in so many schools just to be conforming and just to sort of do what you're told and just fall in line and be a cog in the capitalism wheel and not necessarily uh, question anything. So what do you think that parents can do to start to help bring about racial equity in their child's school or the school district? I think the first thing that parents can do is act and behave as though they do have power. And I think this is particularly important for parents of color, Black parents, parents whose first language may not be English, is particularly important for these particular groups because schools, you know, demonize and, you know, talk bad when, you know, we come up to the school. You know, people are deferential to white parents when they come up to the school and that sort of thing, or Asian parents when they come up to the school. So I think people need to realize their power and advocate Right. And I think this is for, you know, all people, um, white people who want to see their schools be better places for, you know, black and brown children and for their own children. So all parents can advocate for small things like when they see something wrong, like, you know, are we still teaching? How are we teaching about, you know, the so-called discovery of 
Amer- of the Americas. Um, this is something that, you know, my daughter talks to me often about, like, you know, you can you can send a note or you can call the teacher and say, you know, wait a minute. Like, you know, um, y'all still teaching this in 2022? Um, and so I think that there's those kind of basic things. And then I think one of the other things is to just be involved and curious and ask a lot of questions about what students are actually learning. I think one of the things that I always like to remind parents is that we should be more, and maybe some people might say as, but I would say more concerned about what students are learning than we are about like their grades, because oftentimes their grades don't reflect, you know, they aren't an accurate measure of what they're learning. Oftentimes the grades are a reflection of their students' willingness to be compliant, as well as for the parents' willingness to be compliant through like homework and carving out, you know, two hours of homework time when that could be spent, you know, an hour and a half of that could ideally could be spent with families talking and having dinner and cooking together and that sort of thing. And so the homework grade is low. And so the overall grade is low. And so I think some of educators want to have a lot, spend a lot of their energy on issues related to getting parents and students to be compliant. And oftentimes I find that they're less willing to talk to parents about what students are learning, right? Yeah. Just the idea of, you know, are you learning to solve problems? Are you learning how to apply this information in the actual world, right? Not just sort of memorizing things for sort of a quota for, you know, everyone has to get, you know, be on this grade level, right? But not necessarily um, how are they going to use this information to help themselves in the world and help the world, right? The days are officially getting longer. And while there may be a bit more daylight, do you still feel like there isn't enough time to do things like plan and shop for healthy meals? Hungry Root is your partner in healthy living. It's the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality groceries and simple, healthy recipes delivered to your door. Take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know your health goals, your tastes, the appliances you use, and more. Then, they'll build you a personalized cart with all your grocery needs for the week, along with delicious recipe recommendations to put those groceries to good use. Everything from Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole, trusted ingredients. Save hours planning, shopping, and cooking. Hungry Root delivers food you'll love. As a busy parent striving for healthier eating, Hungry Root has been a game changer for our family. Our box was filled with fresh, high-quality ingredients and simple recipes tailored to our tastes and preferences. One feature we particularly loved was the ability to customize our meals by swapping ingredients, making mealtime exciting and adaptable to our needs. Ordering was a breeze, and the convenience of having everything delivered to our door saved us valuable time. Hungry Root truly made our weekly meals easier and better, allowing us to enjoy nutritious and delicious dishes without the stress of planning and shopping. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Project Parenthood listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com parenthood to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com parenthood 
Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Can you talk a little bit about what you've referred to as the conscientious collective pursuit of racial equity and and also challenging the violent conventions of white supremacy and and what that looks like for you personally as a parent? Yeah. The the pursuit piece, the conscientious collective pursuit is really this idea that is strongly connected to the core idea of my book Stuck Improving, which is a way to name this kind of like tension that people experience when you're trying to work towards, you know, in the case of my book, Racial Equity and Progress. I think about, you know, the idea of like you take two steps forward and then you get pushed a step backward and and that sort of thing. Or, you know, you keep trying and, you know, you climb up the mountain and when you get to the mountaintop, you get to the top and you look down and it's just like there's, you know, more mountain ranges. So anyway, that's sort of an aside. But the point is, is that the conscientious pursuit of racial equity is the willingness to still go and give your all to fighting for equity and for fighting what's right and for what's just, despite the fact that it may not work out, that it may go bad, and that if it does work out, often it doesn't work out to the extent or in the way that you would like for it to. But even knowing all of that, you're still conscientiously pursuing it because it's the thing, it's the right thing to do for the people who are coming behind you. And even if you can gain, you know, even if you take three steps and get pushed back two, you still gain one step, which puts the people behind you a step ahead. And so that's the idea of the conscientious pursuit of racial equity. And so a lot of that is about, you know, um, fighting against, you know, white supremacy. And when I say white supremacy, I'm really referring to the idea of, you know, people who have white phenotypes being superior to people who don't. We're talking about structures, you know, from like housing and, you know, lending practices of the past and all of these things that really keep people of color oppressed. And so for me as a parent, it looks like a struggle. Um, I have two beautiful, wonderful, brilliant black children who have dark skin and, I have a son who has a lot of energy and who struggles at school, right? And so all, all of it, a lot of it is a struggle, you know, a struggle to challenge even the ways that I think about how I should be parenting, what I should be doing to, you know, support my children, um, even things like whether, you know, what they deserve, all of these kind of ideas are very interesting. Be, well, not very interesting. A lot of times can be problematic if they reflect this kind of white supremacist thinking about what certain children deserve, what certain children don't deserve, and so on and so forth. And so a lot of it for me as a parent has been trying to figure out how to create a world, not only where my children and Black children can succeed, but how to create a world where they have multiple very opportunities to fail and it not cost them their life opportunities. That's how I tend to think about it. And so, and that's hard. It's hard because that is the affordance that, you know, white folks more, you know, and I wouldn't even say, you know, socioeconomically, but just white folks have the ability to be able to fail multiple times. Egregiously. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, that's the struggle is not so much how to, try to get my children to conform, 
which I do often try to do, right? <laughs> but really the struggle is how to try to create the conditions where they have enough room to figure mm-hmm. things out, right? And where I can be a guide as opposed to having to be a parent who's on them because I have to worry about what will happen to my son if somebody is afraid of him, right? And that's the unfortunate, that's the unfortunate difficult thing is that um, in a way I feel like that's almost inescapable. And so I even find myself having to be on him a lot more, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's little and I'd be having to tell him like, you know, when you get angry, people will be afraid of you. Oh, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, just really having to work with him and talk about those kind of things because he can be angry at home, you know, because we create those conditions. But when he gets out into the world, when he's at school, you know, there's a palpable, you know, in, you know, fear, you know, people are afraid of him. And he's he's little. So and I see that with I see that with a lot of black children in general. Of course. So, of course. I did um, an episode recently, a couple of weeks ago, just about gunplay and weapons that kids pretend play in that way and how that's really a part of development, that they're doing that and that black and brown children don't have the same opportunity to do those things in public, right? Like the idea that, that I even have to say, you know, that... You know, that a, that a black or a brown young boy may not be safe being developmentally normal in the front yard. Yeah. And so as the, we're nearing the end of our conversation, what's one misconception you'd like to clear up about achieving racial equity in schools and in general? I think one of the misconceptions is that things can't change. Things can't get better. I think the way that people answer the question about change and whether things are better, whether we're making progress, is certainly a question that is debatable, that could be looked at from a number of lenses, right? The psychology. I mean, you know, I think about, for example, Barack Obama's presidency and, you know, we live in Chicago. So my children, when they think about elected officials, they think about they think about black people, right? Um, that I think has a profound psychological effect on how they see their possibilities. We're in Chicago, so we have Mayor Lightfoot, but they also have Kamala Harris. They have, you know, they were born into a world with a President Barack Obama. And so there's a tremendous psychological impact, I think, that they have that I'm always trying to be mindful of as an adult and as someone who knows many adults who didn't think that that was possible to not project onto them that it's not going to happen again, because in their world, they think that it is and it is possible. It's, it's normal. Right. But on the other hand, we know, for example, that like, you know, real wages have declined, home ownership has declined, so on and so forth. And so I think that the question of progress should not be settled in terms of we can't, we won't, we have not made progress but rather to always keep it open to interpretation and debate and curiosity and complexity to say that while this is true, right, home ownership rates are down. It's also true that, you know, young people, you know, think about the world in these particular kinds of ways. They think about mutual aid and cooperatives and collectivism in a way that in the 80s when I was growing up, I didn't think about none of that, you know? (laughs) And I think that the shift and change in what's 
young people see as possible is a tremendous resource to understand where we might be headed. Mm-hmm. What young people think is possible. That does inspire hope right. in these sometimes hopeless times. So lastly, what's one thing you want listeners to walk away with from our conversation and from you, your work? In light of this conversation, I think a couple of things. Um, one, uh, that, you know, the unfortunate reality, I, sometimes I feel like I'm very bleak, but the unfortunate reality is, is that, you know, uh, to make the world that we want to see for our children requires us to struggle on their behalf. I'm a person, even when I work with teenagers and young people, I'm always mindful of trying to preserve as much of their kind of like childhood, not necessarily just like innocence, but like opportunity to be silly and to be children. And I think that that requires adults' willingness to take on a role of struggling on their behalf and when necessary with them. And I always kind of tell people like, you know, choose your fight, choose your struggle, right? Whether that's you're going to, and it's, there's always one, whether it's, you know, getting your children to comply, to do their homework, to get that grade, or whether it's to go to the school and say, my child's grade is not a reflection of what they're learning because they know this stuff, right? Both of those require a different kind of struggle. One of them is a struggle at home with your child. The other one is a struggle with the system, with the teachers, with the educators, who oftentimes share many of the kind of same values, you know, as parents. A lot of them, you know, educators are parents too. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing, you know, progress is possible and the progress stems from the struggle, but it's not always, progress is not always what we want it to be and hope for it to be, but still something very important to be intentional about pursuing. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Irby, for being here. It's been a pleasure having you here at Project Parenthood. And thanks so much for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope that's helpful. You can learn more about Dr. Irby's research at www.leadforequity.com. That's www.leadforequity.com. And follow him on Twitter at Dakota Irby, that's D-E-C-O-T-E-A-U-I-R-B-Y, or at Stuck Improving, all one word. You can learn more about my work with parents at www.brooklynparenttherapy.com and follow me on Instagram at BK Parents, that's B-K-P-A-R-E-N-T-S. If you have more questions about creating equitable schools, or any other parenting questions or stories, leave me a message at 646-926-3243. And be sure to let me know if it's okay to use your voice on the show. Or send an email to parenthood at quickanddirtytips.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Project Parenthood on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Project Parenthood is a quick and dirty tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Dan Firebend with script editing by Adam Cecil. Our podcasting and advertising operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our assistant manager is Emily Miller. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. And our intern is Brendan Pika. That's all for this episode. Catch you next week.